Well, hello there. Hello, Penny Van, Gary Spikes. Hello there, Walthus. Welcome to another edition of a show we got going on. So how are you doing, Lala? I'm very good. I'm very excited about tonight's show. It's going to be really cool. A lot of good yeah. people. I see Rebecca's in here. Do we need a tow truck? I didn't <laughs> see any mention of a tow truck. So, yeah. So we got actually some uh, pretty good guests I see lined up tonight. Very, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and start bringing them in. We have uh, Tom. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, man. We have Chris. Welcome. Hi, guys. And thanks for having me on. No. And don't forget Science Bob. Welcome, everybody. Do you guys want to go around and kind of introduce yourselves for everybody? Sure. Okay. We'll go Tom and then around. Okay. So, uh, Tom Reed, uh, my family is... Uh, pretty much known for the Berkshire's UFO incident, which was kind of rebranded, you know, by uh, the Reed incident, uh, Berkshire's UFO incident for, for uh, on, on Netflix. And um, oddly enough, it made a form of UFO history. And I, you know, although I have a lot, a lot of things that I do in careers and things, but I try to put time aside to uh, stay involved in this topic because I take it seriously. And I've made some pretty good friends like that little guy right there, Peter Robbins, you know, he's been a friend of mine for a long time. And, uh, you know, and, and so anyway, I do what I can. I try to um, I try to make a difference. Awesome. Welcome. Do you want me to go next? Yep. Okay. My name's Chris Evers. I'm a long-time, well, I've had a long-term interest in the subject of ufology since my first experience in 1974, which makes uh, this month the 50th anniversary of the start of my interest in the subject. I'm a first-time author. My first book is uh, The Shape of Things to Come from Elsewhere, which was generously provided with a fantastic forward by the man sitting next to me on my left-hand side, which he's just tipped his forehead. I'm also the editor of Outer Limits magazine, which is reaching a milestone in June this year of its 50th issue uh, being presented. And it's a yeah. subscription-based production. That's me. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Oh, Peter, you're muted. You're still muted, Peter. Hi, Peter. <laughs> I'm an investigative writer specializing in the subject of UFOs for many years and host of another show, a weekly show on KUNX called Meanwhile here on Earth on Monday nights. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. You ready, Bob? I, I'm ready. So uh, I, it's amazing to me how modest they are. This you can you can tell really kind of important, well-known people by how modest they are. These people are stars, big-time, well-known people in the UFO field. And before we go jump into them, uh, Grizzly, if you will share my screen, I'd like to make one, uh, just a quick presentation here uh, about uh, John Yost. John uh, was a friend of many of us. Uh, Tom knew him when he uh, awarded John uh, a thing from UFO Expo. John is an author, actor. He um, gave us the movie um, Alien Abduction Answers, and it's the best documentary slash movie narrative of his life and how he found answers of any alien abduction uh, effort I know. And Tom awarded him a big award for it. 
Uh, and um, it's just uh, one of these really, and here's Tom giving uh, John the award. It's a very sad thing for me to have to say that all of John's friends raised huge amount of money, six figures, to for an experimental treatment to try to uh, save John's life uh, from pancreatic cancer. We lost him recently. All of us who knew him are in mourning. And I want to thank everybody here for allowing me to stick this in. This is the first opportunity we had after John passed. And uh, we, I have to give a shout out to Deb Shakti. Deb Shakti is known to many of us as uh, uh, a medium, a, 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 an experiencer, and a light worker. And John credits her with saving his life by helping him through remembrances and recovered memories of his past. So we, we need to thank Deb Shakti. And she was the principal leader of the fundraising effort to try to save John's life. Godspeed, John. We will miss you. And I'm going to stop sharing. Thank you. Thank you for that, actually. <clears throat> he was a good guy, you know. Very oh, sweet. He was a super guy. Yeah. Good hearted. <clears throat> yeah. Absolutely. Um, I guess I'll ask the first question. I, I always ask everybody, I know it's a dumb question, but what is the craziest UFO or paranormal experience you've had or someone close to you has had? We can go around if you want or what, you know. I can tell you a scenario. Okay. All right. So after uh, years of our event, and by the way, there was more than just one. In September 1st, 1969 was the event that everybody knows because it was a holiday. That's why so many people saw it. But there was activity before that, you know, and uh, there was a, a question or a concern whether or not Sprague Electric could make the medallion that was left on the moon. Kind of gave it the to you know to NASA passed on to Buzz Aldrin, which was left on the moon because they already knew there was activity coming from somewhere, so they wanted to leave a calling card, or was it just by chance they left it in June of 1969? In September, there was sightings again, so it was kind of like you know did chicken or the egg, right? It was kind of like what caused that to really be so significant six weeks later. So after leaving the area and uh, trying to start fresh. My father goes and buys this house in Canaan, Connecticut. And we're all like, oh, we're going to start over, put the nonsense behind us, right? Just kind of start fresh, right? Come to find out, it was the house that it's called the Death in Canaan, the Peter Riley case, the, a trial of Barbara Gibbons and Peter Riley, where he supposedly killed his mother. It was one of the biggest, you know, unsolved yeah. murder cases in the state of Connecticut. And so we had the house, the place where the murder took place. And so I used to get like chills in my arms, right? I'd go in there and I started feeling awkward. I was like maybe hypersensitive to things. And my my whole family, you know, we had so many weird things in the house happen. We saw aberrations, you know, smudge marks and things. And it was just like, really? Seriously, Dad? And so uh, the rest of my life, I've always had like um, something happen in the home, either hearing stuff on the steps or, you know, just kind of weird stuff. And mm -hmm. so... Um, to speed this up, I still have a lot of the relics that came out of this house where the murder took place. It used to be an old post office. So we had mm -hmm. all these like tin cases and things where they kept files and everything. And I still have them to this day. And so I'm wondering if what I see in the house or what I feel 
is it coming from that property or is um, it was it something that was opened up as a child with my family when we were young you know what is it that's connecting me to this like window because the scenario i want to tell you about right behind me where the sofa is uh there used to, the tv used to be on the other wall right and so i had some workers on the back porch and they were doing some woodworking for me and that kind of thing and so he leaves his tool bag here and so he comes back like three hours later it's dark in the house knocks on a door for his tool bag i open it up and he slams it and at the same time i see like a smudge mark like this big go across my wall turned and went up the staircase so he he says to me oh do you got a black cat i'm like you saw that too so what i see or what happens in this home is actually seen by other people who visit me it's not me and so i asked myself yeah <laughs> thanks i need one of those <laughs> so i wonder you know where is this coming from and so as far as weirdness i've seen things i've been part of something i've been part of this i've been part of that but i still don't understand why after all these years, I'm still seem to be connected to something that I, I can't make sense of. You know, it's hard to make sense of something you can't understand. Yep. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Holy Thanks, water. Mail me one of those. He will. <laughs> he will. He will. Tom. He'll mail it to you. Give, <laughs> right, him, yeah. give him your address. And next, and next time, we, I'll put it right behind me when I'm on the show, so you see. You know. Yeah, anyway. we'll watch it fly off the shelf while we're live. I, I know how this <laughs> would that be something, right? Yeah, right. Man, that's a wild story, Tom. Oh, yeah. Tom, did your father know about this part of the history of the house when he bought it? Yeah, he did, actually. He, uh, Peter Riley. I knew Peter, too, before it happened. I used to drink beers with the guy. I mean, the night that this happened, he was actually playing, I think, his guitar at the school. And my father at the time, he became a mayor and stuff. But at the time, before he was an attorney, he was like the superintendent of schools, you know. So he was in charge of that event at the school. So the night that it happened, he was with Peter. So this is what happened, right? So so the night he came back, his mother was slain. Mm. And he went and came, opened the door, and he's just like, oh, jumps on her, you know, was covered in blood. And there was a convenience store down the road that heard something. So they called the police. So when the police came in the door, he stands up and he's covered with blood and the body's on the floor. And so they thought, well, you know, my God, you know, you killed your mother. But what people don't understand is that there was a church, you know, right across the street. And uh, there was a cinder block that you could pull out the back and you could hide things in there. So the local kids used to leave things, you know, for people behind the cinder block. And the police knew it was there, too. And they pulled out the cinder block and there were bloody clothes. So would Peter have really killed his mother, changed clothes and then gotten bloody again? No. And so because of that, Maddows, who owned a veal farm, put all this money together and they got him off. He drives a volunteer ambulance right now in Torrington, Connecticut. So, Yeah. But it was so they never got the the real killers. They spent so much time focusing on him, they never got the. Oh no! Yeah, it's definitely somebody local though. So uh, yeah, my father knew him. So did I. It's a book. It's a movie with Brian Dennehy. Mm. Oh, yeah. I've seen that movie. Dennehy's yeah. one of my favorite actors. Yeah, I got a weird life. You know, explains my behavior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need holy water. You need anointment oils. What you need. <laughs> Mm. Okay, do you want me to go next? Yeah. Okay. Um, I've had a couple of UFO sightings over of, of my my lifetime on on this uh, 
rock in space that we call the Earth. First one was 1974, which brought me into the subject. Basically, it was a light that jumped across the sky. It leapfrogged from position one to position three, position two, position four. Did that coming across the sky till it got above me, above my position. I shouted, look, guys, it's a UFO. Uh, it disappeared, completely blinked out, wasn't seen again, completely cloudless, uh, clear sky. Uh, it was early February 1974. We've been very lucky with the weather. There was that. My second uh, UFO experience was a group of us were doing a sky watch uh, on the banks of the River Humber here in United Kingdom, uh, back of the British Aerospace Factory, which made parts for um, aircraft, fighter aircraft, and so on and so forth. Ball of light came down the hill opposite, come down, uh, came onto the river about a third of the way across. I'm watching it go to my right, uh, disappears after about a mile, mile and a half. I turned to my two friends said, oh, it's gone. They said, no, it hasn't. It's going under the Humber Bridge, which was to our left. And uh, so obviously I'd seen it come down, split in two and go in two separate directions. But the most weird thing that has, has happened to me, uh, we lost my mum in 2004. Um, she passed away, she had cancer, uh, she had a two-year fight, she passed away just before, well, round about Christmas time, December 2004. Now, obviously, we cleared the home, etc. We give the keys back to the landlord, and um, we thought no more of it. Anyway, I took one or two mementos to remember her by. One of them, because I actually needed one, was a shaving mirror out of the bathroom now come the new year's eve uh we we buried my mum on the 20th of december come new year's eve my wife and i decided to go out uh just try and bring a bit of fun back into our lives anyway we're getting ready and um i'm there with all the shaving cream on around my face and everything and i look down to the mirror and my mum is staring back at me out of the mirror so that that was weird uh, a one which was before then, this was the very early 2000s, my wife and I and my two uh, stepchildren were walking down the road next to a Victorian school here in Kingston-upon-Hull, or Hull as we call it, in, in Great Britain. And uh, there's a fence about shoulder height, railings in the fence, you know, so far apart, metal railings. And beyond the metal railings was a, a privet edge, a garden edge, which was about the same height as the fence and about a foot and a half, two foot wide uh, across, you know. And um, we're walking by and I feel somebody pull my right hand shoulder and I'm walking right next to the fence. But it was done with such force, it spun me around. So about this time, I'm getting ready to put my left fist on somebody's chin. But as I spun round, there was nobody there. Nobody behind the fence, nobody standing behind us or anything. So those are my weird occasions in my life. Thank you. Wow. Mm. I, I got a question. Can I... <laughs> I can't promise I'll answer it. <laughs> so, go on, so, go ahead. So this, you know, kind of dimensional or paranormal activity, do you think that that had anything to do with a, a UFO uh, type of incident prior to that? 
Um, possibly it could have done. There is there are indications that it, this kind of activity uh, is associated with the UFO subject, oh, yeah. just like things like uh, ABCs are associated uh, alien big cats, as we used to call them. That would you know these kind of things. Animals in strange places seem to be part of that as well. That these things have all occurred in the past. Interesting. Yes. Um, you asked for the craziest UFO experience. I'm not exactly sure how to interpret that, but I, um, I'm not one of those people who has all kinds of sightings and experiences. I had, uh, like Chris, um, a sighting when I was a kid, mm -hmm. uh, which sparked my interest, but only after more than 14 years, uh, right. that memory became very repressed. Um, and I had a second sighting of uh, anomalous objects in England, in Suffolk, on February 18th, 1988, on my very first visit over there to uh, begin research on a subject I thought I would move through fairly quickly in a year or two. And uh, 10 years later, the book uh, that we were dealing with was published. Um, I had a a sighting, a very simple one, camping out with my best friend uh, when um, I guess I was still in art school or just graduated. And it was um, in the state of Maine, very rural, um, an object tracking along that only looked like a weather satellite against a wonderful starry sky with no uh, pollution or ambient light. And we both happened to be looking at it as it made something of a turn and just continued on its new trajectory. Uh, wow. Again, it's 50 years ago, my friend, uh, who was still my best friend, uh, doesn't remember it, but I do. And then I had the one I, I'll talk to you about because um, it was very crazy for the person I was with, I think. And for me, it was a very interesting coincidence. And it happened on August 28th, 1989. And the reason I remember that is I had spent the previous two and a half months or so in Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, with a summer stock uh, repertory theater company. I had been assistant director on a production of Chekhov's The Seagull, and I was house manager for that and the other play our company was doing there that season. And um, summer stock theater is very grueling. It can be very exciting and fun, but you work 16 hours a day, six days a week, basically. And when it was all over, um, I was going to head back to New York City, my home, and continue on my other stuff. And the head of our lighting, who was a native guy who lived a few hours north and had married one of the actresses in the company, um, French actress, said, you know, I have 40 acres. I built my home on it. Um, it's really rural. It's very wilderness. Why don't you come up for a few days and just cool out before heading back to New York? And I thought that was a great idea. And we left that afternoon. By early that evening, we were there and it was beautiful. Uh, beaver dams and uh, a wonderful hand-hewn home. And as it was starting to get dark, um, his wife, Marielle, went into the house and started to make dinner, but came out uh, after a while, as it was dark, with several flutes of champagne. <clears throat> it was my birthday, a reason that I remember that it was August 28th. And again, in Maine, a beautiful night sky, uh, 
there it is, it, just no ambient light, as pretty as it can be. And once again, we're looking at what I can only interpret as a boring, you know, off-white weather satellite tracking along at a nice slow speed. And John starts to joke with me, wouldn't it be really funny and wild if that were a UFO? I was already about a year into working on the book Left at East Gate about the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. We started to joke about it and it stopped and the light started to pulsate. Wow. And then it basically did this. And then it started to go blue and then it was out of there. Yeah. And he essentially freaked out as one does at moments like that and just started to react and uh, this blast of nervous excitement and incredulity, like, I can't believe it, that was a UFO, and I can't believe I'm here with you. Nobody would ever believe me if I told them because it's just too crazy and it's you and not somebody else. And I responded to um, essentially saying, well, it is crazy and the coincidence is absurd and, um, it's me, but I can say it because I don't care what people think. And it just happened and we saw it. Wow. And I think it was um, a night that John still remembers <laughs> and I still remember too. Yeah. It's funny too, because you're writing, writing a book about the subject. So you already know it's a, a feasible thing that's uh, right. And so uh, this kind of just, I would imagine, just kind of solidified your interest in writing the book. By the way, August 28th is your birthday. That's my brother's birthday. Oh, wow. So I'm going to remember this story now. <laughs> when wow. I talk to my brother, I'll be like, Peter Robbins has your birthday. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I would think that if you're writing a book about a subject that your people think is already kind of odd, because this goes back a while when people were like really skeptical about the whole topic. And then you see something that just solidifies your interest yeah. in what you're doing. So I think that was perfect. Yeah, yeah. I do too. I remember when I was 19, I was in Pennsylvania with a friend in a field somewhere. And I kept looking at this one star, very bright. And it did similar to what you just said. One, it's like it knew I was looking at it. It zigzagged around another star, zoomed off, disappeared. And it was, you're the first person I've heard say something identical to what I saw. So. But I kept it to myself for a long time. Sure. My friend, he didn't see it. He was off doing something stupid, probably. Poor Science Bob is getting called out in the chat. Uh-oh. What, what can I say? Do you want me to go? It's a lot of people yeah. have your birthday. Yes, I don't think so, Science uh, Bob understand what I just said. You're being called I out did. in the chat. Okay. I hear. I've, I'm watching it. You're putting yeah. it on the screen. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> so... So uh, a lot, a lot of people uh, uh, know some of my stories of being with Chris Bledsoe and then getting with Lala and having all these weird experiences, but they don't know the ones that led up to all of that. So I worked for the United States government in the U.S. intelligence community for nearly 30 years. By the time, if you add DOE and working at Sandia National Labs and you want to include it, it is 30 years. So in 2008, uh, at, right after uh, New Year's, I flew over uh, and boarded 
the USS Blue Ridge, which is the uh, flagship of the 7th Fleet, which is based in Yokosuka, Japan. And I was on there for several months. We were doing port visits, and I was doing whatever I had to do, which I can't tell you, but I was doing whatever I had to do while we were on board and in the port. So anyway, we're nearing the end of the major hat, first half, and we were on, left uh, the Philippines, Manila, Philippines, and we were on our way to Japan. And we decided to go right through the middle of a typhoon. And there were 90 knot winds, 50, 60 foot seas. It was, it was amazing. So it was just bouncing up and down like cuckoo. And almost everybody on the board was laying in their bunks sick, throwing up. But I'm being a weirdo. I was not. I was on the bridge having a blast looking at all that through the through all the glass. So I noticed all of a sudden that this is a big ship. This is a helicopter carrier ship. Many people might remember this ship. It was the carrier helicopter carrier ship where they shoved the helicopter off the back of the ship at the end of the Vietnam War when we brought, brought when the helicopter was used to rescue all of the people who were in our embassy in Saigon. So that's the ship. Uh, and I noticed that as we were kind of approaching the eye wall and it was blowing like crazy, raining like mad, all of a sudden the rain stopped. The rain was gone. Uh, I went, what in the world is this? It says, I know where we are, and how has the rain stopped? So I walked up and looked through the windows. Everybody else was doing their job because, I mean, it's you're trying to navigate a, a big ship and a typhoon and not have it founder. So anyway, I, and I was just a, I was a rider, did my thing whenever I needed to, but I was off and I was having fun. So I walked up to the window, and I looked up, and I could see a very dim glow in just just above just above the cloud bottoms and it was blocking the rain so it was bigger than the uss blue ridge so mm -hmm. i kept looking i going what in the heck is that and all of a sudden it got really bright and doo, took off straight up and the rain returned so that was the major incident that caused me to really get interested in UFOs. And when I began hearing all of this stuff about UFOs inside the government right before I retired, I got to know Richard Dolan, went to Chris Bledsoe's, met Lala, and there, there you go, my life. But the USS Blue Ridge is what got me interested. The thing was bigger than the ship. Wow. Very interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after we see one of our affiliates. Stand by. And it didn't play, did it? <laughs> <laughs> now they, they said just use this. It'll work. It's okay. Just buffered. Hmm. All right, we'll try it on the next show. So don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, check out the store. Uh, put the link in the affiliate or down in the description. Hello, Lon. Welcome. Nice to see you on the show. And uh, all right, Lala, take it over. 
Um, it, I told Bob he can ask questions. Now. It's his turn, technically. So, uh, can I? Chris, sorry, can I? Can I just interrupt a yes. second, ahead, Bob? Chris. I'm, ahead, I'm extremely interested in in your sighting while you was aboard the vessel. Um, I'm actually doing a publication at the moment, my second book, which is all about USOs, unidentified uh, submerged objects, not literally UFOs underwater, but anything that involves water. So, if I give you my email address, could you send me a description of your event, please? Yeah, I'm happy to. And you may have seen the story about me on the front page of the Daily Mail. Uh, I was on the USS Hampton in mm. uh, 1998, and we had a USO that went past us. And the senior master chief who ran sonar said it was moving faster than the speed of sound, and it can't be doing that in incompressible water. So I have a USO story for you. Send, send, give me the email, and I'll be happy to write you. And But I you can do. see the story in the Daily Mail. Yep. Sorry to interrupt everybody. No, you're no, fine. Yeah, if, yeah. if, if you don't mind, uh, uh, Chris, share. Let me share the screen with this this stuff. I'm I'm going to embarrass them all. <laughs> okay, so we need Tom to tell us uh, whatever he wants to about the UFO Monument Park and his experiences with his family during the uh, Berkshire UFO event because that was really good. And then Peter, of course, has done Meanwhile on Earth for a long time. But Peter also was uh, a, a friend to and assistant of uh, Bud Hopkins when Bud Hopkins was doing all of his uh, abduction uh, uh, research and uh, hypnosis uh, sessions with the uh, with the abductees. And Peter was heavily involved in there nearly from the beginning and wrote this book and this book, and this book, and then Chris is, he's Outer Limits Magazine, and he's running this big conference uh, this coming uh, fall, and as you can see, Peter is going to be one of the speakers. So, Tom, look, at least tell our audience uh, something about the uh, Berkshire UFO experience and the UFO park, which, by the way, anybody who can go see the park should go. Yeah, sure. There's so much that uh, has never been picked up or told accurately, which is why I kind of do what I do. Um, there's so many points to it, but I are okay. So Peter probably knows he's up in, in that area around the Berkshires. There was, you know, Command Aerospace, Sikorsky, there was Pratt and Whitney. You've got General Electric. There was a lot going on, you know, in the 60s that involved the space race. And NASA is across the street from MIT. They're still there to this day, I believe. But Back in the day, you know, NASA was in Boston. And so the money that was being fed into the area to beat Russia to space was going through NASA, was being fed to Sprague Electric, made the medallion that was left on the moon and all that. This was all not too far from our diner. And the diner that we had that my, my parents bought back in the 60s wasn't too far from the Great Barrington Racetrack, which was like the second largest racetrack to Saratoga. And so a lot of people ate in our diner. Those who worked on the space race were some of them because it was the closest place to eat near the racetrack. I mean, it was just, that's, that's how it worked. And so um, when you look at that as well as the school buses did not go to everybody's home, you know, they would meet at certain corners and the parents would have to take their kids to the corners because these were farming communities with long driveways and all that. And so rather than wait or drop their children off at a stop in, you know, an intersection somewhere, they'd bring them to the diner. And so my mother would run a tab and the kids would eat French toast, eggs, whatever they wanted, would all walk to school together, right? 
some of those kids are responsible for getting our case inducted into state because they remembered, you know, what happened back in the day. So um, the uh, night that this happened, uh, the 69 incident, um, we, I had written in, I, was, I used to ride horses. I was in the 4-H club and I was writing it at the Great Barrington 4-H show, whatever. We got back early. My mom wanted to clean up the diner, get it ready for the following day. Cause again, this was Labor Day. It was a holiday. Get ready for school the next day. And so she took a, a shortcut and Peter's been to my park. He's been, he's walked this bridge I'm about to tell you about. Sure. And so back in the day though, yeah, right. <clears throat> back in the day when, when you hit this bridge, it wasn't like it is today where it's almost flat. It would go up. And so when we went up this little incline to, to level off to get to the bridge, the headlights were hitting the top of the bridge. And my grandmother noticed that there was light coming from below the bridge. And so she said something to the effect, you know, that it doesn't make sense to, you know, what's that light coming from? She didn't say it at the time, but she mentioned it afterwards. And so as we went across the bridge, it came down the other side. Again, you know, this was a tough dirt road with potholes. So we were going really slow. And as we came out the backside, there was a sphere that looked like a cue ball with like a two watt light to it. And that was off to our left. And it, it was rising from like the banks of the Housatonic River, you know, which is why I went to the UN in support of the Hudson River Valley sightings because they thought that something carry over. But anyway, so as we continued to go th down the Sturt Road, my brother looked to the right because he was trying to see this thing too, but we've got the windows open. I'm looking out the, the door, my, you know, we're moving. So he started to look to the right to see if he could spot something as well. And he saw it look, looked like an orange orb. And that was our sphere, which was near the water. So mm -hmm. we kind of split these two balls of, or spheres, went right between it. And then when my mother, you know, stopped near this telephone pole to get a better look at what was going on, we didn't see this white sphere anymore. But what she did see was like this huge thing in the field, which looked like a turtle shell. It looked very rough, you know, well, like pewter and goldish and silver. It had these different tones to it. But what really stood out and why you could see it was, and I'm going to say the front of it because it was going, it was kind of hovering there, but in the way our car was going, one part of it had like a reddish tint to it. And that uh, kind of bled through the shell of the craft itself. So you could kind of make it out. So it was like shinier or red, more red on one part. And then it just kind of tapered off and you could see the, the whole thing. So in the past, I've said, yeah, you know, you could see the light of it, not lights, but it lit up itself. It had like an inner, it had glowed itself to some degree. There was no ear, no windows. I didn't see anything like that. I'm like almost 10 years old. I'm looking at this thing out the window and like, like uh, Unsolved Mystery says, like my mom goes, you know, what is that? Because she did, it was huge. And um, it just kind of stayed there. So as we were parked, then we heard what sounded like tapping sounds. Like when you're in a swimming pool and someone's tapping, maybe a rock or something on the side, you hear ding, 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 ding. It's really loud, but everything else is muted. That's what it was like. It was like stones hitting underneath the fender wall, but our car was already parked. And then, um, you know, then uh, there was this, we could see inside the car. I could see the radio. It was like lit up inside, but didn't the light didn't bother my eyes. And then all of a sudden, everything just went silent. Like someone just flipped a switch off like this like a vacuum and silence. And then it was just like, we were just like nothing. And all of a sudden, bang, the, the crickets happened and the frogs and the cadians and all this noise went normal again. And then that's the last thing I remember from being in the car. But I remember a large open hangar type of thing with, you know, like what looked like a tube of light, a space, a tube of light, a space where the ceiling met the, the, the ceiling met the wall. Um, I remember being grabbed in my left arm, it hurt, being brought out a door. Um, an apparatus that lowered over my body from the ceiling. Uh, 
uh, I remember a large open area it was like like an empty Walmart. It was that big, you know. Mm-hmm. It was much bigger than the craft. So I've always said, you know, I was not a craft. Wherever I was was much bigger than what we saw. So I've never said that I was actually on a craft or abducted in 1969 because I wasn't. We were, this was a military type of thing, and I've said that from day one. And uh, you know, <laughs> you know, listen to any podcast I've ever done or any interview I've ever done. Um, well, that was one of the reasons I think that um, the state was also more apt to induct it into history as historically true because so much was going on in the area at the time when we were extracted from the car for sure. Matter of fact, when we got back in the car, the, the ignition was off. You know, my grandmother and mother were reversed, which is kind of a human error. Mm-hmm. Then my grandmother drove the car back to down, you know, the center of town in Sheffield to get help, went into a silk store, which still remembers it to this day because they still own it. That when she went in for help, you know, she didn't know what to ask for help for. And so she was there trying to talk to the, the clerk to say, you know, something's wrong. You know, Tom's my son's not my 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 daughter, my my mother, Nancy is not responding. Tom and Matthew are unconscious. Then I kind of came to I was the second one to come to. And I ran in the silks because no one else in the car was responding to me. And I started grabbing her arm and I'm like, Nana, Nana, trying to get her out the door. Um, mm-hmm. crying, you know, it's very emotional. She was placid and not really knowing what to say or do. And there are bikes in the way. We were like running into these bikes and stuff. It was just stupid. It was like a convenience store that sold bikes and bass, you know, things for babies and strollers and everything else and food. And it was like a your one shop stop, right? And it was just the weirdest thing. So he remembers that, you know, the the cashier remembers us going in there and and tr- and really struggling to make sense of what she wanted help for. But if she had called the police or called the radio station, we didn't realize at the time that Tom Jay, the radio uh, announcer, had gone down to the radio station uh, per request of the police department to ask people to report where the sighting was. Like if you watch Netflix Unsolved Mysteries, Jan, Jan Green goes, I went down to the radio station and knocked on the door because they reopened the, the lines to the, you know, to the the radio station to the general public to say, where's this thing? We want to dispatch the police to it. Hmm. So uh, the next morning we're at the diner and sure enough, all these people that were calling the radio station the night before when this happened to us, they were broadcasting that it went out on channel four, New York. It was also rebroadcast on WSBS radio. And so if she had only said something, this whole thing could have been so much bigger because you know, at the time, she just didn't know what to say, you know. Um, but she was the one who will tell you that uh, she was the one that had something very personal happen to her. Whereas mm-hmm. now here's the thing, you know, I've never said, you know, we were abducted in the the, the way people would expect a situation to ha- unfold like that. But what I saw was not earthly. You know, what I saw was off world for sure. The, I saw like an insect type bean, which is in the Rod, Roswell Museum. You know, we just had that made. It's this is the first time it'll be on display this year. Um, so, what what happened? I think there's an underground base somewhere in the Great Barrington Sheffield area. There's a lot of activity. There's still crop circles reported in 2013, 2012, 1995. There's sightings all the time. I've got clear pictures of these spheres over cornfields. The corn, Pete'll tell you, he's been there. I think he saw the corn. The corn grows like 17 feet tall. I've got corn like the size of your arm. Wow. We've had tests done down there. I mean, 
there's something very weird. There's a weird vibe. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. But uh, we're not quite sure what's going on. But I, I swear that there's something underground there. Plus, you had the Nike missile sites, the Minutemen missile sites. They have a NORAD tower in Dalton. There's something underground there, and I, I'm sure of it. So, anyway. And by the way, Rolling 20s, I know who that is. He's our drone operator. His name is Rob. Can we say hi to Rob? <laughs> hey, Rob. Come on, everybody. Come on. We're Hello <laughs> there. Welcome to the show. A round Thanks. of applause for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I, I have a picture of him, but I'm, I won't bring it up. But uh, in all the pictures you guys took at the UFO park, I have a picture yeah, of him. Yeah. And uh, I, I like the picture he took looking down at you and other people right by the mouth of the br covered bridge. That's my favorite photo of the site. Wow. That's a good way to word it. So is there anything else I can tell you about what what happened? Okay, I will say this. Okay, so a lot of people aren't aware that when my father got into office, he met Robert Bletchman, who was the public relations director for MUFON. And he approached my father to see if he could mention our case over the Housatonic River, because that's where it was all seen around the Housatonic River, um, at the United Nations. So Stanton Friedman was there. Linda Morton Howe was there. It was, uh, this was uh, 33426 is what they were revisiting. And Muhammad Rabadan was the president of the parapsychology at the, at the time. And so I dropped off the check for $500 to Robert Bletchman so that they could have this contractual agreement that they wouldn't say too much more because my father had aspirations of moving on in, in politics, right? And so with that, I dropped off the check to Robert Bletchman in Manchester, Connecticut. And he mentioned our case in support of the Hudson River Valley incident as well as Cash and Landerman because of the effects around our vehicle and how we described how, you know, could it have be something similar to what they experienced? But there wasn't any radiation on our vehicle that I know of. But that was some of what we talked about. And Robert also showed me pictures of um, these UFOs, if you will, underwater in the Hudson. And I've never seen those pictures since, but I saw them with him. So I don't know what happened to those, but they were very telling. And so uh, on uh, October 2nd, 1992, our case was discussed, not as a front runner, just in support of another case um, at the UN. And my father lost his life on the anniversary of those talks. My father was killed on the same date. And uh, right. And that's kind of how we got the marker in Sheffield and how the park, you know, took, took off the way it did because it was a way of the community paying something forward to my father for advocating something most people thought was ridiculous. So that's how the part came to me. It's a great story. And Tom, you'll be at Pine Bush right. conference. <laughs> What's that? You'll be at Pine Bush conference. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I will. Okay, good. Yeah. Anybody that wants to meet Tom is a great UFO at uh, convention at Pine Bush. And it's one of these really great things. The whole town is shut down vendors are all on the streets. It's amazing. Lala and I are going this year. I'm going to face paint some aliens on people. So <laughs> be I will. I have a question for everybody. Why do you think <clears throat> government is slowly exposing us to more information here and there? Do you think there's an agenda or something happened or... I don't think they have a choice at this time. Um, the story has been bubbling away for over 75 years. And mm -hmm. in 2017, some people feel it was the trigger for kind of a, 
a sea change or it was coincident, but the New York Times um, published two important articles on the UFO subject um, by three different reporters, Ralph Blumenthal, uh, Leslie Kane, and Helene Cooper. And um, they kind of marked a shift away from the era of ridicule as a given that really started with the phenomena itself in 1947. Um, since 2017, 2018, it's, um, we're all aware of the phenomena from different points of view that more and more uh, elected officials, um, many of them fairly distinguished, uh, and I would say equally from both sides of the aisle, uh, um, distinguish them, distinguishing themselves as incredibly um, inquisitive about this subject and wanting the material to come out. Mm -hmm. uh, needless to say, there are tens of millions of people at least that have wanted that for decades and decades. So we're kind of in this post-ridicule time. And at the same time, I, I can't prove it, but my best intuition and educated guesses are that there continue to be people behind the screen, so to say, um, who would like things to remain they were, uh, the way they were. But you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Whether or not disclosure with a capital D comes at us as some series of official announcements by world leaders, or it simply continues as a process that is going on every day in one way or another all over the world, uh, heading for some hypothetical tipping point at some point where mm, not more people than not take the subject seriously, but a critical number of people in the general population take it seriously enough that the forces may shift, so to say. There are so many possible scenarios of how this will become um, fully acknowledge. And it could happen tomorrow. It could never happen. It could happen in 15 years or six months from now. Um, a lot of play, a lot of variables in where we're going at the moment, but it's certainly a profoundly interesting period in the world of uh, UFO studies and experiencers. Absolutely. I love the, I love that. Um, I love Grush came out. Grush was, did, did a really good thing and he was very, very smart. He got permission to say everything he said, and he realized that if he put in for a, approval to say the things he was saying, that the government would have to admit that the things they wanted to quash were true in writing, on the record, and name themselves and what department they represented and why they were saying it had to be kept secret. By going for Dopser approval, Grush let everyone know that the stuff was real. Well, you know, Rush was not a whistleblower. No. Whistleblowers are, whistleblowers are first, you know, everything he said was secondhand. So I want to explain something. So uh, Tim Birch, Congressman Tim Birch, is a friend of mine. He lives about three miles from me. We go to lunch. Um, Tim Birch it's also you know, was texting me during the hearings. So he asked me what I thought, and I said, I think your whistleblower left his whistle at home. So the way this worked during the hearings, Congress doesn't really know as much as people think they did do. They were actually mining for information like everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. The real whistleblowers are behind closed doors, showing video and talking and giving the information to Grush. And Grush was coming up front and talking about what they had already discussed in the back. Tim, you know, Tim Burchett had a list of questions, but he wasn't going to have time anymore because they, 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 because of seniority, they gave the, you know, the basically head, the guy who headed it up came in the last minute. So Tim gave everyone else the, the questions that he wanted because he had already seen the information on the monitors was already privy to something that I can't even discuss right now. But anyway, so with that, Grush was given the information to speak so that the real whistleblowers would not have their face blasted all over the friggin', you know, televisions. So mm-hmm. Grush was secondhand information. Now, what he was saying was accurate and true, but he's not a whistleblower. He was the voice as a well, whistleblower. So, so his, his whistleblower status is not about the UFO stuff. His whistleblower status is a legal definition of he filed a complaint against the Department of Defense for covering up an activity and not informing Congress about it. So that's a violation of law since the uh, Nixon administration. He is a whistleblower for that by the definition of the law. Uh, information. Whistleblowers have firsthand information. Tom, he handed a uh, documentation to the investigators and gave the investigators the 42 names. That's pretty firsthand. That's the documentation's firsthand, sure. Can I jump in here and give you a view from this side of the swimming pool, the mm-hmm. pond, as it's sometimes called? First of all, Britain doesn't have anything like what you guys are experiencing over there with uh, the hearings that are going on and so on and so forth. Um, I do believe the British government is being informed from the American authorities, the Canadian authorities in this group of five individual countries that are allegedly all working together. Now, the British interest in the subject allegedly finished in 2009 when the flying uh, saucer uh, desk uh, the UFO desk, whatever you want to call it, was shut down. People will know that as Nick Pope was once uh, working on that desk. Um, even though the subject of Nick is a little bit controversial over here in the UK and his position, I don't want to get into that at this moment, but he did work for the desk. Uh, anyway, um, that was set up in, I think, originally by Winston Churchill back in the 1950s, kind of the same time that Grudge... Uh, and signed, finished over there in the USA, and Blue Book became active. Anyway, that carried on till 2009, then all the documents, etc., have supposed to have been released into the public domain. But I do think there has been a massive sea change in the subject since 17th of December 2017, uh, with the New York Times article, as Peter mentioned a moment ago. Now, that I, I've witnessed that change. Personally, I was doing a, an interview on the BBC Radio Humberside. Humberside was the county where I live. It's now back known as East Yorkshire. It was a local uh, radio station over here. Walked in, all was nice, made welcome. There was me and another colleague there by the name of Mike Covell, who was an historian come investigator of the subject. Anyway, we sat down. And uh, the first question I got asked live on air was, have you ever been probed? Now, 
of course, I thought, right, I'm not putting up with this. I'm not having one of those kind of interviews. Nobody's going to take the mickey out of me. So I quoted the New York Times article directly at the presenter of the show, live on air. And boy, did that interview change. It certainly changed when the Pentagon had admitted there was something behind the UFO subject. But one thing we have to remember as well about that, that article is that the US authorities admitted to the world that their so-called lack of interest since the end of Project Blue Book was a lie. They admitted they'd lied to us globally because everybody globally looks towards the USA to bring this information out. But my own opinion is there is more, more than enough evidence globally of sightings, of abductions, mutilations which sometimes get forgotten about the animal mutilations yeah. undersea uh, examples of ufos moving around you know we have more than enough evidence why do we have to rely on the u.s government alone to bring that information out and admit it to the general public now well, i'm no speaking as an Eng well, no i'm speaking as an englishman anyway. there right nobody believes our government anyway exactly so, yeah i get it so that's my thought from this side of the air, the swimming pool, guys. Thank you. Um, for people that don't know, can you guys kind of give information on the MyLabs or the government mixing with other beings? Because a lot of people aren't aware of what it is. If you want. <laughs> it's yes, an area of study I've never really gotten into. Yeah, me neither. To be honest, I, I can I can tell you my thought on on, on something I guess relative to that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, you know, ask me, you know, what do you think this all means, right? When you really get down to it, you know, science, Bob, Grizzly, everybody's like, what does this really mean at the end of the day? You know, what are we part of? You know, and and what's going to happen fifty years from now? How's, how are things going to pan out? Um, I've always looked at um, Earth as kind of our galaxy's arc. You know, we've had visitation and, and interference here or our ancestors or you know however you want to look at it earth has like it rotates on this unique access right so we can we can we're offer life to those that need you know like a rainforest environment desert we have salt water brackish fresh water um, there's really everything here and all this life can live here simultaneously right. and so if if you look at anything zebras tiger whatever you want if there were just one male and female, then they would have all died off a long time ago because it would have been interbred, gotten sick, and passed on. So everything here had to have been stocked, right? Mm -hmm. Five or six females, five or six males, close enough so they'd meet each other and, you know, relatively the same age, right? You know, mm -hmm. so that kind of thing. So it seems to me like it was very well planned. And we're finding more and more animals or species on, a, on a, almost a monthly basis. So after five global extinctions, we've got 8 million species here. They're coming from somewhere. So when people say to me, you know, the whole fallen angel crap or whatever, you know, if this was something that was meant to harm us, we would have been gone a long time ago. Our planet would not be expanding and finding yeah. new life all the time. It would be going in the other direction, if that makes sense. I definitely agree with that. Absolutely. 
I, and I wonder how many of us have implants and we're just not aware. I would love to know why some people do have implants in them. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think you're being, I, I think you're being tracked and information. Look, I know the, I know the implants you have in you, Lala, are transmitting because I've measured the transmission power coming out of your implants. So that means somebody's got to be on the other end receiving those transmissions. So mm -hmm. it's location and or data about something about you. You're a data source for your location and uh, your well-being or whatever. It's being transmitted someplace. I don't know whether it's the United States government tracking you. I mean, we have, we have, black helicopters fly right over the top of our roof with some regularity mm -hmm. uh, and um, unmarked. They're unmarked. They have no markings on them. Uh, and uh, then she's, she, and she's chased a UFO down a road and had one of these unmarked helicopters come right down on top of her car, turn the rotors nearly vertical and blow her off the road. Okay, so I mean, that she's, was kind she's, of fun, she's, she's led an interesting life, but I just it think was. they're monitoring either they or the aliens or both are monitoring you. Hey, hey, science Bob, do you believe in a parallel universe? Yes, so do you think the chip makes sure that we get back to our correct planet? Oh, I would love for that, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know the answer. I, I believe in the parallel universes from a scientific point of view, but I don't know that answer. I don't know the purpose of, of all this. I had this discussion with someone who believes they, they had an implant as well, and they thought, well, maybe it was just to make sure that I get back to the proper, you know. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Nobody knows. She definitely, ha she definitely has two implants in her because I've measured the RF emissions from her when they were active. I wonder how many different species of aliens do come here to either monitor or visit. They say 69 approximately. You know, I so have to stop that, you right there. Anybody that puts a number out, how can anybody possibly know that number? I don't care who you're connected with or who you think you know. If you were every world leader rolled into one and the head of six alien races at the same time, there'd be no way to fully empirically establish that number. It's just something that makes us, I think, look a little silly when we start uh, to get behind numbers. Uh, it, like it, 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 makes, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. I mean, the, you just count how many galaxies there are in the known universe and in each galaxy, on average, how many stars that we now know are Earth-like in their temperature, water, etc., and we can't possibly know uh, how well, Bob, many it's, living it's things. But, but, but one, one thing, one thing I want to point out, and then I'll let you have it, Peter. Well, I want to point out one thing, and that is, we are sending probes to the moons around the big planets in our solar system. I believe we're going to find life in the oceans in those uh, in those moons and once we find life kind of in all these weird craggy spaces all over our solar system life will be everywhere we look in the universe this universe has been tuned for life okay go ahead peter sorry 
that's fine. The numbers that you're talking about have nothing to do with any of us coming forward and saying, I think it's, you know, 74 or 56 or 34. I heard it's bullshit. Nobody knows that number. It's it's just it's, it's completely irrelevant. It's your opinion, and it means right. nothing. We have no way of establishing that number, and we just look kind of silly or believer-oriented yeah. or, yeah. you know, um, turn your We're attention to multiverses. How does anyone really know? Exactly, Peter. No, they don't. Now, I, I was told that if you shrunk the solar system to the size of a quarter, the nearest moon would be a football field away. I mean, that's how vast we're talking. No, how could anybody know? Back in um, back in 1950, a gentleman by the name of Enrico Fermi, who was known for asking questions along these lines, uh, actually, should I say, guesstimate or an estimate, whatever it was, he asked the question, where is everybody? Now, he estimated there was something like 300 billion stars in the galaxy. Each of those stars, he estimated, would have at least one planet around them. Now, whether or not there was intelligent life on those planets is, of course, another completely different question. But if we take that number of 300 billion and think about it if we we look at our own solar system one planet in eight or nine if you you know you want to get <laughs> guessing other planets um you know we've got to say there must be at least tens if not tens of thousands of other planets that are out there that may have the possibility of life but right now it's all theory and that is all it is and we cannot answer that question directly and give as peter said a definitive number that's true yeah you're right that makes sense i guess uh, a lot of people i guess what's talked about the most are the mantids or the nordics or the palladians we don't really hear about too many other different ones you know that's all I, 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 yeah go ahead now, technically, we've already brought back life because there has been microbes and, and, and fungus and things like that on the, on the space shuttles. So technically, we've brought back life. And there's been water, I think, found in meteors and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, intelligent life. I'd like to see some intelligent life on Earth. You know, <laughs> we need to find that first. Yeah, God, there's us, right? But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Yeah, there was. Um, I remember when you when you look at you know saying how many how many different species are out there. Uh, in my book, the shape of things to come, I looked at all the different, well, many different shapes of the visitors' crafts, or you know, which is supposed to be visiting us. But I remember seeing a, a poster on. Um, it, it could have been Google Images or something like that, and there was a picture of a flying saucer. You know, and there was a ve actually 57 different shapes of visitors' craft on this. Now, if that is representative of the truth, then at least 57 different species of visiting us. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. Right. Yeah, I, I had no idea that, you know, growing up, I always thought it was just one craft that just, you know, a tic-tac or something. But 
I mean, I've seen orbs. I've seen them hide in clouds. I've seen them shapeshift. It's amazing. And a lot of people aren't open to learning more about it. They're so fearful of this topic or numb to it. It's weird. You tell them something and they're like, okay, well, what's on TV? It's just, it's strange to me. I children, think personally that like we children have in the dark, right? Right. So how does everybody find you all and follow you and reach out to you guys? Tom, start to with you. Or Chris, it don't matter. I'll go. Oh, ufopark.org is my website. You can contact me through there. Sorry, I can't hear too well. Oh, am I okay? Am I loud? Yeah, you're fine. Oh, okay. So how to reach me? You can reach my, I got an email at ufopark.org or, you know, it's tomreed.official at Gmail. And I'll try to get back to anybody who has any questions. I do my best. I'm I'm busy, but, you know, I'll get back to you. All right. Okay. My contact details, there, Grizzly, are there at, at the bottom of my nameplate there on the bottom of the screen. You know, you can get me at www.olm-mag.co.uk or theouterlimitsmag at gmail.com. And any, anybody that asks questions, wants to know anything about Outer Limits magazine, can always get me on there. Awesome. And Peter? Uh-oh, oh, you're muted again. No, we can't hear you, Peter. His mic died on him. Science Bob, how about you? Well, Peter, uh, I'm I'm at uh, uh, Bob McGuire underscore N four H Y is my uh, Twitter name, and Bob McGuire on Facebook, and we can hear Peter now. All right, Peter, go ahead. Uh, follow me on Facebook and listen to my radio show. It's Meanwhile Here on Earth. It's on KUNX Digital Broadcasting Monday nights, 7 to 9 Eastern Standard Time. And um, past shows, about $300, $300, if only <laughs> 300 hours worth of programming can be found on Spreaker and iHeart and Deezer and Audible and um all of those other platforms. And the, the guy running up Peter's uh, organization where his show and many others is race Hobbs race was supposed to be here tonight. He had a death in the family and we, we all, we all want to wish race. Well, mm, thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in and it's been a pleasure. And from coast to coast around the world. Good night, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks guys. Bye -bye. Good night.